Hello and welcome to this edition of Inside Briefing Extra, the podcast from the Institute for Government. It's now been over a month in which British politics has been dominated not by developments in the fight against COVID, nor even by that old familiar Brexit, nor by impending elections in local and devolved governments. Instead, increasingly, it's former Prime Minister David Cameron who's dominating the front pages. And five years after he left, his name is again front and centre in Parliament. In the last few days, the row has blown up further beyond the relationship between a failing business and a former prime minister. Many are now asking fundamental questions about lobbying in British politics, the rules that guide both ministers and civil servants, and the wider state of standards in public life. This story has seen a growing list of former and current government ministers and officials dragged in, and it shows no sign of calming down, quite the opposite. So we sounded the IFG alarm and dragged a stellar trio away from their frequent media appearances to help us make sense of it all and look at what it says about the current rules and what needs to change. Hannah White is our Deputy Director and a former Secretary of the Committee on Standards in Public Life. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Kath. Tim Durrant is IFG Associate Director leading our work on ministers. Hello, Tim. Hello, hello. And Alex Thomas, IFG Programme Director and a former civil servant at the heart of government. Hi, Alex. Hello, Kath. Okay, let's start with the basics. Tim, can you give us an overview of the row thus far and the latest developments? Absolutely. As you said, you know, a lot of this is centred around allegations about David Cameron. We've seen various reports in the papers looking into uh, both his links with this this firm, Greensill, this finance firm, when he was Prime Minister and also uh, more recently... Um, when he was prime minister, the, the the boss of the firm, Lex Greensill, was apparently working in some capacity inside uh, Cameron's government and was um, was uh, appointed there by Jeremy Hayward, the, the then cabinet secretary. But more recently, uh, Cameron has been working for Greensill uh, and has been lobbying current government ministers, including the chancellor, on behalf of Greensill's finance firm uh, during the pandemic. The firm has now collapsed. And um, various questions have been asked about the role that Cameron uh, has been playing for Greensill, the kind of propriety of the lobbying that he's been doing, but also, as you've said, Kath, you know, the links uh, that this firm has across government and the wider questions that this raises about lobbying and rules around ministers' jobs after government. So we know that the Prime Minister has launched an inquiry um, asking a board member from the business department's uh, board to look into what's happened in, inside government, but also three select committees. So the Treasury Select Committee, the Public Administration Committee and the Public Accounts Committee are all looking into what's going on. As well as the specifics of the Greensill case and, and the Cameron case, there are these bigger questions about regulation around lobbying, the transparency around it, are the current rules around ministers declaring meetings and so on, are they fit for purpose? But also big questions have been asked about the rules that govern what ministers and senior officials can do after they leave government. Because as well as David Cameron working for Greensill, we found out this week that Bill Crothers, who was a senior official at the Cabinet Office, was also for Greensill at the same time as still being employed by the Cabinet Office. So there's a lot of big questions being asked about the, the structures of standards and rules in public life generally. All right, lots for us to delve into there, some of the specifics and some of the bigger questions. Alex, first question to you. Has anyone broken the rules here? Uh, I, I guess the answer to that is we don't know because uh, uh, the um, uh, reviews need to need to play out. Um, but the sort of uh, uh, basic sense is no. And that says quite a lot about the 
rules. Um, David Cameron uh, waited two years and uh, did the sort of proper uh, process through the uh, business interest uh, rules. Um, uh, Bill Crothers certainly claims that uh, he got uh, permission to have uh, this uh, additional role working for uh, Greensill Capital while also being a a civil servant. Uh, I think there's a bit of a nuance there, which is that while there isn't a bar on civil servants taking uh, any extra jobs there uh, are pretty strong rules about avoiding conflicts of interest and making sure that there isn't the uh, reality or perception of conflicts of interest so i do think there's a question there as to whether he was uh, conflicted um but uh, and 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 as as has been commented on there's uh, uh, some very very narrow rules around um registering consultant lobbyists nobody in this uh, uh, saga is a consultant uh, lobbyist uh, and so uh, didn't need to be registered so uh, we don't know but it doesn't look like uh, anybody has as far as we can tell yeah and that's i think that's part of the issue we'll have to get into a bit about what does need to change in the rules hannah as tim said quite a busy day in parliament yesterday it seems to now be dominating um in political minds what's going on there has the mood sort of suddenly changed and you know is this is this turning into a much bigger thing than just about david cameron i think it really is i mean what we saw yesterday was uh the opposition they had an opposition day when they got to choose what was going to be debated in, in the House of Commons. And, and what they chose to do was put down a motion calling for a big uh, new committee to be set up to do an inquiry into uh, all these issues. They, they the, the Kistama, the Labour leader, said, you know, the uh, inquiry proposed by the government is not wide enough in scope. And it doesn't and it isn't actually truly independent because it's being run by somebody who's been appointed by the government as a non-executive uh, to the Department for for Business. Um, And so he's not truly independent because he's actually a government appointee. So what we need is a parliamentary inquiry, they said. Uh, The government voted down that motion uh, in a rare um, move by the government to actually bother to vote on an opposition day, Mm. which they don't often do, but they clearly knew that if they didn't vote on this one, uh, it would the committee would actually be set up. So they marshaled the troops. Shortly after, though, it became clear that that was not going to stop Parliament from uh, looking into this. And I think, as, as Tim said, we've already had official announcements uh, of inquiries by three common select committees and a fourth uh, being discussed. So uh, Parliament certainly um, is getting its teeth into this. And I think, as you were implying your question, uh, you know, it's spreading far beyond David Cameron. The questions now are being raised about uh, civil servants as well as about ministers. Um, and there's really um, uh, an appetite, I think, in Parliament to, to look uh, at the rules um, in, in quite a broad sense. Tim, let's just talk a bit about ministers and the rules that, that guide them. Alex has touched on that a bit. It's this body, a COBA, isn't it, that looks into that. But we've also, we've debated many times about the ministerial code, about the prime minister's ability to investigate ministers. Uh, You know, what are the difficulties in terms of the rules around former and current ministers and their actions? Are they strong enough? You know, is there more that needs to be done here? And who should be looking into all of this stuff? Should the government have done a bespoke inquiry like this? Or should they have someone doing it? So I think it's worth sort of setting out, you know, the, the rules are different for current ministers as and, and former ministers. If you've left government, uh, then as you say, Cathy, the, the rules which are enforced by ACOBA, the um, Committee on Business Appointments, um, but they are not set by ACOBA, they are set by the government, 
the rules are that for two years after leaving government, ex-ministers cannot lobby the government. That is a, a blanket uh, ban. But of course, two years goes by quite quickly. Cameron left um, Downing Street in uh, summer of 2016 and only started working for Greensill in 2018. So he was completely complying with those rules. Um, now, ACOBA can advise ministers that they might that they shouldn't take up certain posts because they think it might be embarrassing or there might be a perception of a conflict of interest, but they have no way of enforcing that advice. All they can do is write to a minister and say, we don't think you should do this. Yeah, and, then, and, that, and uh, Eric Pickles, the chair, has been pretty outspoken on that this week, hasn't he? He has. He was talking to a, a Commons committee earlier today and saying, you know, most of the time, the, the only lever they have really is, is embarrassment. So if if they write to a, minister, a former minister and say, we don't think you should do this, um, and then the minister goes ahead and does it anyway, ACOBA will publish its letter. That's that's all they can do. They can say, we, we said you shouldn't have done this. They have no sort of legal powers to, to require a minister to, to turn down a, an appointment. I do wonder, though, what what effect it does have on these firms looking at employing people. I mean, there's the embarrassment for the individual themselves. But I I, I can imagine that actually, uh, if you're looking to to potentially get onto your book, somebody, you you, you might look uh, less favourably on someone who's been wrapped over the knuckles by a cobra than uh, somebody who who sort of followed the law. A sort of the, reputational the concern. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for the and firms it, as well as the individuals. And a lot to, depends, I think, on context. I mean, the the... Pickles' letters uh, over the last uh, week or so have had enormous impact because everybody's talking about Greensill Capital. Um, I think had we not been in the midst of this uh, scandal, had the media not been focusing on it, certainly uh, in, in my experience, Acoba letters are pretty well uh, ignored. And so th- the context is all in this. It can become a huge media furore, but it can also sink without trace, I think. Yeah, and I mean, it's quite, you know, Boris Johnson has actually gone on the front foot now. I know you know, what you're saying about the question marks about who's leading this inquiry for the prime minister. Should it have been far more independent, not somebody associated with government? But, um, you know, is it still quite rare, Tim, for, for Boris Johnson to actually kick off an inquiry? He's been a bit reluctant in the past, dare I say. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tweeted, I think, on, on Monday or Tuesday this week saying I had no expectation that he would launch an inquiry. And later that afternoon, the cabinet. <laughs> off. So, so, you know, it's down to you. That's an impact. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Talking that up. But I think, you know, as you say, Kath, he, he has been quite reluctant to investigate, to formally investigate standards, um, the standards that his current ministerial team are, are sort of adhering to. So the most famous example is, of course, uh, when Priti Patel was accused of bullying by Home Office officials. Johnson did ask his independent advisor to investigate that. Uh, Sir Alex Allen found that Patel had broken the ministerial code, but Johnson disagreed. And so uh, Allen felt that his position was no longer tenable and resigned. That was in November last year. We're now five months on from then. And there has been no appointment of a, a new independent advisor on ministerial interest. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, in normal times, the sort of uh, the kind of enforcement and investigation of adherence to the ministerial code is not a priority for the prime minister, um, but it is interesting. You know, this is different. I think partly because you know personalities involved. Um, you know, commentators have said how you know Johnson won't mind having something to to criticise Cameron about, uh, but also. It's about uh, you know the, the scale of this has gone has gone so much bigger I think than anyone saw when it when it first came out in the papers a few weeks ago. I think that's the question for Johnson that you know when he launched this inquiry, maybe in a in a proper Sir Humphrey way, he thought he knew before he launched an inquiry what the outcome mm-hmm. of that inquiry would be, and the downside looked to be mostly for David Cameron. Yeah. Now things seem to be spreading much further, 
there is a question about whether the inquiry as framed is going to look unduly narrow and actually the issue is going to go much broader than this and maybe the inquiry and the inquiries that will be going on in Parliament uh, will actually have much wider implications for, for the government and, and perhaps all p- political parties. And they, they certainly initially uh, called it a review rather than an inquiry. I mean, uh, so, and that's, you know, it's semantics in one sense, but it's quite it's quite telling about how the government saw that piece of work. I mean, there's an interesting, prompted by what Tim was saying, really, there's a, there is an interesting sort of counterfactual, or sort of counterintuitive view here about, is this actually the system working? Uh, uh, parliamentary furore, media scrutiny, uh, and so on, things that things are coming out and you you could sort of just about argue i think that that parliament uh, and 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 uh, uh, the media are doing their job but the reason why i don't think it shows the system working is because it, it shows up the gaps in the existing rules and it's only this particular context uh, that means that all of this has has come out i think that if greensill hadn't collapsed as a company the chances are that even if somebody had decided to leak david cameron's involvement uh, in in lobbying for greensill there wouldn't have been the the same pickup on that on that as a question because Greensill would still be being seen as a sort of reputable company, or maybe it was fair enough for him to to be lobbying on on their behalf. So you can't guarantee that in uh you know in an alternative reality where Greensill you know maybe Cameron was successful in uh, lobbying on behalf of Greensill and they did get access to public funds and they they stayed afloat as a company. I can't go. I think you can guarantee that we'd be having this conversation now. That's true. Although if it was dependent on that lobbying, it might still be just as a a bigger deal as, um, uh, you know, but Cameron was unsuccessful there. Okay, Alex, can I just jump in on one of the things you you said about the gaps in the rules? And and obviously, the story grew this week, as Tim said, because a senior civil servant in in, head of procurement, Bill Crothers, um, was found to have held a job with Greensill whilst he was still a civil servant. I mean, for a lot of people, this would be bamboozling, right? You're either a civil servant or you're not. Explain this and explain, you know, why now the Cabinet Office are hurriedly trying to find out who else this might be uh, true of. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of civil servants and former civil servants, it's pretty bamboozling, to be honest. I mean, I have rarely had quite so many WhatsApps, texts, uh, you know, current and former civil servants are really angry and really frustrated about this because it's put it, it puts the civil service in um, uh, a very, very uh, difficult position and damages the civil service. So I suppose that's the first point to make, which goes to the, the next really, which is, uh, that it is it is really unusual the vanishingly unusual in in, in my experience i don't know what t- tim and others uh, uh, felt but i i can't think of uh, uh, civil servants i sort of work closely with absolutely school governor charity non-executive having a sideline as an advisor to a private company very very uh, uh, you know uh, unusual and, and and sort of impossibly uh, conflicted so there's a lot of anger in the civil service uh, about this how how did it happen well i think there's something about the rules which is um uh, it's 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 not against the rules to have uh, alternative uh, employment or, or 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 to be an advisor to uh, to to uh, a private company but it is against the rules to be conflicted as i said um uh, earlier and there's an ambiguity there that relies heavily on individuals um uh, sort of personal judgment uh so I, that seems to have uh, have have played out in this instance i think the second is about the culture of different bits of the civil service i mean the reason why uh, i didn't uh, you know can't think of anyone uh, uh, who i uh, worked with uh, 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 you know other than those who've been reported in the uh, papers was because i was a sort of policy civil servant a career civil servant there's been a 
a, a perfectly reasonable and legitimate drive over the last 10, 15 years or so to get more commercial and private sector experience in the civil service. That's been really good in many respects. The response to the Carillion collapse was much better than it would have been because the civil mm. service had lots of commercial uh, and procurement uh, experts uh, in it. But it does mean that there was a bit of a sort of uh, quite a different culture in that part of the cabinet office where you had a lot of people from the private sector, a lot of people with close, uh, closely integrated into the private sector who were expecting to go back to the private sector. Uh, and uh, that's not incompatible with civil service values of uh, impartiality and integrity and, and objectivity, but it definitely poses a challenge to it. So my suspicion, let's see what the review says, is that is that that's partly what's gone on here. I think also... Uh- just on, on, on the rules that, that applied to Quadras, you know, the argument that, that he made and the cabinet officers made is that he was signed off by the cabinet officers' uh, conflict of interest policy at the time. Um, but that isn't published anywhere. So nobody knows how that aligns or doesn't align with the ACOBA rules, with the sort of wider civil service code about conflicts of interest. It just, I think, comes back to this point about the organisational culture um, of, of the cabinet office and, and perhaps that bit of the cabinet office in particular. You know, there is this sort of uh, they're not as transparent as those of us outside government might expect them to be. And the thing I was really struck by actually listening to Eric Pickles giving evidence to uh, PACAC this morning, Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, was how narrowly he sort of obviously sees the role of ACABA. Um, as, as, as Alex said, ACABA is enforcing rules set by government. And, you know, there's obviously a, a sort of a, a principle behind those, a, a thing you're trying to avoid, the, the fact that you're trying to avoid either the reality or the perception of, of an inappropriate um, relationship. But, you know, Pickles is clearly, from the questions that he was being asked and was unable to answer, he has no idea about what's gone on in, in the Cabinet Office and what the uh, processes might be that do govern the civil servants immediately before they're leaving government. He can only look at, at those two, that two-year period. Um, and actually, the wider context, um, we now realise, once we've seen what happened with, with Crothers, um, and you know more may come out during the uh, review, um, is really crucial. But ACABA can't go beyond the rules that have been set for it by government. Yeah. And Kate, uh, Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, I think is also up in front of PACAC in the next couple of weeks. So we can expect this to be big question asked of him as well. Um, I feel like I should say, you say ACABO, I say ACOBA. Let's call the whole thing off. Or David Carroll would like to. But let's turn to that. I mean, that seems to be one thing that you know, it feels like inevitable that some or other of these reviews or inquiries are going to say that needs to change. It needs to be given more teeth, more powers, maybe extend the time limit. Um, what else, though, do people think might we might see change here? What about lobbying rules as well? We haven't really talked about Rishi Sunak, but he was the intended recipient of David Cameron's lobbying. We've seen a bit of some text coming out and some emails discussed, but not a huge amount of light on what went on there. But what do people think about the rules that need to be fixed now? The thing that I mean, just linking up the two previous points we're, we're making, um, you know, I think that um, potentially giving Akaba <clears throat> more of a relationship with Parliament could help. You know, we've seen now that once it's exercised about these matters, Parliament can get, you know, can get get quite interested. And actually, if the rules that Akaba enforced were actually set by Parliament and owned by Parliament, and and it was a body which reported to Parliament rather than uh, just being able to publish the sort of letters on the gov.uk 
website, I think that would really strengthen um, its position. Yeah. There's um I uh I'm going to try not to get too techy so um stop me if I if I do but uh uh there's also something I think about the lobbying rules and the transparency uh rules as they mm. apply so the the consultant lobbyists register which I uh you know take the opportunity to confess I was um uh the lead official uh, 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 civil servant doing the legislation it's at the time in coalition government but it was <laughs> definitely under ministerial direction I should say now um uh but um the lobbying uh, register is designed only to capture consultant uh, lobbyists and that's because the theory being that you don't know who if those consultants meet a minister you don't necessarily know who they're representing whereas if yeah. somebody employed by bp meets a minister you know that they're representing um, bp that's then designed to complement the transparency uh, returns that um that uh, departments publish that set out who top civil servants and ministers meet um so the theory being that you can draw a clear line through all of that to understand who ministers are meeting and where the two obvious gaps i mean there are plenty of gaps with that but two obvious gaps are firstly that um ministers don't need to declare private conversations text messages um uh, sometimes even sort of phone calls I, I i don't know interesting question whether a zoom call counts or not mm-hmm. um uh, i assume it probably does if it's an official uh, call so that side of the transparency returns isn't comprehensive and then uh, uh, in terms of the lobbyists it doesn't capture people like David Cameron who are employed by but sort of slightly at one remove from uh, from the company they're uh, they're working for so there are lots of holes in that I it's it's difficult because you can't regulate every single interaction that everybody ever has in government but there are definitely steps you could take to improve the transparency yeah just on that that point I think as, as Alex says, you know, there's there's two questions here. One is like, oh, should there be new rules? And one is, should the current rules be better enforced on the transparency? And a, a sort of a relevant example, as well as Sunak, um, there's been there's been confirmation that um, Greensill and Cameron met Matt Hancock before the pandemic uh, when he was health secretary in late 2019. Uh, that meeting is not recorded on the Department of Health's uh, meeting register, and. You know, it, Cameron uh, Hancock, sorry, said that he told his officials about it, but it hasn't made it into the system. So, as Alex says, you know, there are there are grey areas in the current rules which could be strengthened, as well as um, strengthening and sort of building new rules. Yeah, and Hannah, though the all important question—that's what sh- could change, should change—is reform actually likely to happen? Do we think the Nolan principles, those uh, p- uh, principles on standards in public life, do they still govern public life? Do people care about this? I think the other body we shouldn't forget here is the Committee on Standards in Public Life, um, who are conducting a big review anyway of the standards landscape. And I think in light of what's been going on, there's likely to now have a special focus on lobbying. Um, and, and they will take a view as alongside all these other reviews and parliamentary inquiries and so on. I mean, I think the trouble with, um, you know, the Nolan principles in, in this context is that, you know, technically speaking, uh, David Cameron no longer held any public office. The Nolan principles govern people in public life. And he was, uh, you know, by the time he worked for Greensill, two years out of public life. Um, so he had no obligation to weigh his you know, proposed um, actions against against the Nolan principles. But, you know, we I think you know, most people feel that given he, um, you know, had been such a high profile figure um, and, 
you know, and, and had sort of benefited from contacts that he'd made in government that he was then then using privately, that he still ought to have been uh, working according to those principles. Now, the question you actually asked, you know, is anything going to change? I think, you know, it really depends how big this gets. Mm. At the moment, you know, there's a lot of heat and noise around it. The government was trying to sort of diffuse some of that, I think, by setting up the review. Um, the fact that these parliamentary committees have now got in on the act, I think, means that there is going to be, you know, that there's going to be continuing noise about it. It's not going to just go away into the long grass conveniently. Um, and it, you know, and the journalists, as you know, all of us on this podcast know, are busily trying to dig up lots of other angles on this story. So I think, you know, it's going to be, and my view is in the end, it's going to be hard to do nothing. My suspicion, though, is that in a typical British government way, what we might end up with are some little tweaks around the edges. And the question is whether that's really going to solve the problem. Okay, well, I mean, it is something that we expect to keep running for some time longer. We'll wait and see. I'm sure David Cameron will be hoping there's something else dominating this Sunday's papers, but he can be reassured that we will be watching and we'll come back to make sense of it all for you if there's more to tell on this. Uh, we'll leave it for there for now. Thank you for listening and thanks to Hannah, Alex and Tim for joining us and providing such a brilliant run through of a subject which can be confusing. Again, ask David Cameron. Hannah and I will be back later recording our regular Inside Briefing podcast, so look out for that one as well. And as ever, all our great audio content can be found on Spotify, iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hold up. 